Thanks, Brian. That was a lot of fun. Nice job. <clears throat> a lot of fun. Uh, good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is uh, Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Jess and uh, Peter said before, we want to welcome you to our church, especially if uh, you're a visitor or maybe you haven't been around in a while uh, for the summer. We are very glad you're back. Thank you for joining us. Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, get your fans out. Find some way to cool down. It's going to be a hot one. But uh, like Peter said, we are in a sermon series in the New Testament letter of 2 Timothy. Today is the last week in it, and so if you haven't been around for this series up till uh, this point, uh, what you need to know is that uh, Paul is the author of this book. He is an early church leader. He started new churches. He uh, went to different places as a missionary and, and uh, shared the gospel. Now at this point, when he's writing this book, he is in prison his execution is coming up uh, pretty soon by the Roman authorities, and he's writing a letter to this guy, Timothy, so his protege in the faith, his, his son in the faith that he has been uh, investing in for decades, deeply loves, and this guy, Timothy, he's in another city, pastor at a different church. So that's kind of the setup of what's going on uh, in our series today. We're going to look at the very last few verses of this letter. Uh, starting in verse 9 through 22. We're calling today uh, Last Words. So as we're going to see the last uh, words that we have recorded of uh, the Apostle Paul. So pretty soon he's going to die. Um, and so these are the last words that we have from him, both to Timothy in this letter as well as just the last recorded words we have. But before we get to Paul's last words, I wanted to introduce you to uh, my grandfather, uh, Lauren Peterson. He's there on the bottom left. That's a uh, Nine years ago, so that's when Charlie was like one year old. And so there's four generations of Petersons there. Uh, about eight years ago, my grandfather gave me a phone call, which uh, felt kind of strange because Grandpa and I don't talk on the phone. Um, he's a, you know, quiet World War II vet, kind of a, yeah, just a, didn't have too many words. A fantastic, uh, wonderful man. But to get a phone call from him was kind of strange. So I answered it. We chatted. Uh, and he shared with me that he was going to have surgery the next day. And so, um, kind of strange that he called me, but he just wanted prayer, uh, wanted, uh, yeah, me to know what was going on. And so I prayed for him. My grandma was on the phone. Um, this was back when, like, people had phones in their houses, and you could have, like, multiple phones in the house. So grandma was on the phone, and uh, I got to pray for him, and, and that was it. And then I found out um, the next day that he had passed in surgery. And so, uh, very, very uh, sad, going from surprising to sad to lose someone I deeply love. But as my grandpa knew uh, that his end was near, he knew that the surgery was very risky, um, that he probably wouldn't make it, even though he didn't tell me that. Um, as he saw his end in sight, he wanted to connect with and, and be close to those that he loved. And that's what we're going to see today in Paul's letter. This is Paul's reality as well. He's not going to have surgery the next day, but he knows he's going to be executed by the Roman authorities soon. He sees the writing on the wall, and so that is the setting. So as we read our passage today, think about that setting. Uh, an older man who knows he's going to die soon, and these are his last words he gets to share. So kind of, kind of feel that um, tension of um, this is his last chance to say something. What is he going to say? Uh, knowing that his death is imminent. All right, if you want, you can follow along in uh, your own Bibles. Also, the words will be up here on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Starting in verse 9. 
Paul writing, he says, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to uh, Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. I sent Tychus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through, my, through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubius greets you, and so do Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. I joked first service, I should have got someone to read the passage ahead of time because uh, those were some tough names there, but um, I didn't. So you get to watch me wrestle through them. Anyway, so here's our passage. Like we said, here is a picture of Paul. He's an older man. He's nearing his end. He's in his second imprisonment, if you kind of wonder about the timeline, in his life, and he is about to be executed. And as he's in this stage, alone, nearing the end of his life, what he wants is to deeply, uh, or he wants to be close to his friends and ministry companions that he loves deeply. So the last thing he asks for, if you noticed, he says things to Timothy like, do your best to come here quickly. If at all possible, Timothy, come visit me. Which is a, a big ask uh, if you know the uh, circumstances surrounding it. So where Timothy is at, he's in Ephesus. I think it's about like a thousand mile journey to get to where Paul is at in Rome. It would take in something like four months to get there and lots of money. So Paul asking uh, Timothy, leave your church, leave Ephesus and come Greet, uh, come be with me. That's a pretty big ask, but you can see just what Paul values as he's nearing his death. He also says things like, uh, get Mark and bring him along as well. So another dear friend. So along with just asking for his cloak and some scrolls and parchments, he also tells Timothy, I want you here, my brother, and I want you to bring Mark along well. So we see here at the end of 2 Timothy, as we look at just our whole passage here today, we see the realities of church ministry, the, re the realities of the Christian life. Sometimes we can think about the early church or maybe read the book of Acts and think like, wow, they were, we got to get back to that. That's when the church was pure and perfect and, and the Spirit was doing powerful things and people were coming to Christ like mad. And the reality is, when we read books like this, we see church ministry is just messy. The Christian life is long and hard. And it is full of, uh, yeah, of people letting people down, betrayal, people leaving the faith, God doing powerful things amidst all this chaos. And church ministry is often uh, like a long, bloody battle with casualties and victories along the way. 
as we wait for our king to show up and fully usher in his kingdom and his full, final, uh, and eternal victory that he'll bring. And so when we just read this, we see all these names of these people, and it's just very kind of mundane at times. It's very like uh, just this person went this to this city, this person went to this. It's also some deep scars. It's also some people uh, messing up. And it's also things like bring me my books and bring me my jacket because winter is coming. So we get this cool kind of real look, uh, unfiltered look into what church life looked like in the first century and what church ministry looks like. So the first thing I want us to do is I want us to look at, Paul names lots of people, and I want to look at three Three of these people, three real historical men. I can pronounce all three of their names, but that's not why I'm picking them. Uh, three real historical men whose lives give us both warning and hope. And kind of sets up the rest of the sermon. So first, let's uh, look at Demas. So Demas, if you know his story, uh, and we, he, he doesn't come up very much uh, throughout the Bible, but a few other times Paul does reference him. So Demas was actually in the inner circle of Paul. He was a fellow church, leader, uh, fellow church leader. He was a friend of Paul who was deeply trusted. In some of yeah, Paul's letters, he says, you know, greetings to the church in Colossae. Me and Demas and Luke and Mark uh, wish you well. We love you and we miss you. But now, uh, we just read in verse 10, Paul's telling Timothy, remember Demas? One of, one of ours, one of our leaders, one of our trusted friends, he left us. He has deserted us. Verse 10, we read, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. So a once trusted friend yet has now abandoned Paul. And, and commentators kind of wrestle back and forth. Is he leaving the faith uh, or is he just abandoning Paul? Is he an apostate that's no longer a Christian? Or is he just a guy who, like this passage says, just loves the world or who loves this present age, this life right now. And most people think it's that second because there was a church in Thessalonica and Paul doesn't say he left the faith or he abandoned Jesus, but rather just says he has deserted me and went to a new city. But regardless, Paul is heartbroken. In his greatest need, one of his closest friends deserted him. Just deserted him. A trusted friend, a partner in the gospel has abandoned him and his heart is broken. Paul also mentions uh, an even worse character, a guy named Alexander. Uh, verse 14 says, Alexander the metal worker, he did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You two should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So this guy is probably, we're not sure, but probably another guy named Alexander in 1 Timothy, the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, this guy, Alexander, lived in a city called Troas and was also, in 1 Timothy, was called an opponent to uh, the gospel message, an opponent to Paul's church planting efforts there. And the reason Paul is calling this guy out and also warning Timothy is because if Timothy's going to go from Ephesus all the way to Rome to visit Paul, he's going to go have, have to go through Troas. And Paul is uh, warning him, there's going to be a guy in Troas. His name is Alexander. He hurt me deeply. He's a bad guy. He's an enemy of us. So look out for him when you're going through that city. And for some of us, or maybe most of us, we don't really want this to be true, this idea that we actually have 
enemies. Maybe you're a people pleaser, kind of like myself, and, and it's, I, I don't like it when people don't like me. Or maybe it's just human nature to uh, not like that there are enemies out there. Kind of reminds me of Pam from The Office, where she just hated the idea that someone wouldn't like her, and she keeps kind of badgering this guy that she dated years and years ago. A lot of us are like that. We just don't like this idea that there's people out there who are against us or who don't like us or maybe even are our enemies. But the reality is we do because we're followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus promised this. He told his disciples, this, they hated me so the world will also hate you. This will be our reality, Jesus promised us. And, and here, Paul doesn't mince words. He says, there is a guy who's against us. He will do you great harm. Beware of him. Look out for him. Yet, it's interesting what else Paul says. Paul says the Lord will repay him for what he has done. So it's interesting. Paul doesn't say, uh, go to the Roman authorities and get this guy thrown in jail. Or, or spread this guy's name out so we can cancel him. Or demand justice when you go through Troas because this guy is our enemy. But rather what Paul does is, is he acknowledges this guy is against the spread of the gospel. He's an enemy of the cross. Yet, Paul at the same time entrusts justice to God. And in fact, in our passage from last week, 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, the Lord is a righteous judge. He describes Jesus as being a judge, but not a judge who takes bribes, not a judge who looks the other way when injustice is happening, but Jesus is a righteous judge. And under Jesus' rule and kingdom and kingship, injustice will not win. No evil will go unpunished. No bribes will be taken. And so Paul can just rest in the fact that uh, God is a good judge. And so even though there are enemies, he can trust in God's plan around this. Not only that, but Paul, and we see this in, in, in his writings and in his story, as well as Jesus's teaching, Paul realizes that our ultimate enemy is not a guy named Alexander. It's not the government. It's not evil people out there. But our ultimate enemy is our own sin and is death and is Satan. And so we're going to see that play out a bit more throughout our passage and sermon later today. So we'll come back for that. But the third person we're going to look at, so we have Demas who abandons Paul. We have Alexander who's an enemy of Paul. We have this third guy named Mark. Or sometimes he's also called John Mark because the Bible people had a bunch of names. And so he gets two. So this guy is uh, John Mark. I actually used this um, painting of Mark uh, years ago in a sermon I did when he was one of the characters. And a few women in our church came up to me and said, man, he is cute. So this is uh, the very handsome writer of the second gospel, uh, John Mark. So if you don't know John Mark's story, he uh, is in the New Testament. He was one of the characters. He was young. He worked with the Apostle Paul, and he was a part of his first missionary journey. So decades prior to our passage here today, Paul took Timothy, and they went on a church planning journey. They went to a bunch of cities in the ancient world that preach the gospel, that start new churches and, and, and move on. Uh, Mark was a part of that. But somewhere in the middle of that journey, uh, Mark deserted Paul. He abandoned Paul. And like Demas, he just uh, split when Paul needed him 
deeply. And so fast forward a number of years, Paul's about to go out onto a second similar journey. And his, his co-worker, a guy named Barnabas, is like, hey, let's bring, let's bring John Mark along with us on this second journey. He's grown a lot. He was young before. He made some mistakes. He was naive. Let's bring him along. He'll be helpful. And Paul said to Barnabas, no way. I, I'm not bringing this guy along. He is, he is a coward. He betrayed me. He is not coming. And this disagreement was so big. Paul was so deeply wounded and had such strong convictions that Mark should not come on this trip that actually Paul and Barnabas split and they went on their own separate ways. So that is uh, a big chunk of John Mark's story. He is known as a coward. He is known as uh, a ministry partner who uh, ditched uh, his, his spiritual father when things got tough. He's a picture of Demas, just like the first guy that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Yet now, listen to what Paul says. As Paul's nearing the end of his life, he tells Timothy, come as fast as you can. Come before winter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die soon, and I deeply want to see you, brother, and bring along Mark. Bring Mark, because he is helpful for me in ministry. Ministering to my own soul, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in Mark, we see not just a, a warning of condemnation or a warning of what the cares of this world can do to a Christian, but we see a picture of redemption. In his final moments, Paul wants his dear friends close to him, and one of those includes the guy that stuck a, a knife deep in his back and left great wounds. Because of the gospel, Paul is able to forgive Mark. Because of the gospel, Mark has repented and they have reconciled and we see this great redemption. Now this is uh, kind of in the white space. We don't know this exactly happened, but some historians and, and early church uh, writers think this, this probably happened. But if this happens, if, if uh, Timothy grabs Mark, they grab the parchments and the scrolls and they meet up with Paul in his uh, Roman cell right before his death, um, they're probably going through. So, so Paul's parchments and scrolls that he says to bring are probably uh, uh, Paul's uh, theological writings. It's probably copies of the Old Testament and it's probably accounts of Jesus's life. And if you don't know, uh, John Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. Um, uh, John Mark worked with uh, Peter, another one of Jesus's disciples. So the Gospel of Mark is probably Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus's teachings and life and his signs and wonders and his death and resurrection. We have heard Luke is already there. He's another Gospel writer. He writes the Gospel of Luke. And so probably what's going on is these three guys are coming together and, and Paul's last few weeks and months of life are scouring the Old Testament to find Jesus all over the place, that are comparing notes about, remember when Jesus did this? Remember when he said this? This is what it accomplished. This is what it means. And so even though this is a very dire situation, a Paul about to be unjustly executed, a bunch of the New Testament is probably being written and composed and compiled right here. So even amidst great sadness and uh, not victory, but, but losing and death, the gospel is being written. Jesus' story and all the theological truths surrounding it are starting to come together. And soon, Mark and Luke will write their gospels and they'll be spread among the churches. But in contrast, back to these guys' story, in contrast between Demas, 
who we don't know how his story ends, and Alexander, who is an enemy of Paul and the gospel. Mark's story is a reminder that no one, no one is beyond redemption. No one is too far from Jesus for him to just be disregarded. Whether you're a coward, whether you're a fool, whether you're a deserter, whether you're a faithless one, or whether you're someone who has abandoned friends or stuck knives in their backs, Mark's story is a reminder that no one is beyond Jesus' redemption. That there's always hope for reconciliation. First, between God, and, even, uh, and then secondarily, be out of that, because of that, reconciliation with people that we have wronged. And if you notice too, Paul's, uh, you probably felt it. He's saying, I am, I'm despairing, guys. I am hopeless, guys. I'm at the very end. Everyone deserted me. No one was here. Friends, brothers, come here. I'm lonely. I'm discouraged. And if you noticed, what is Jesus using to help Paul persevere in the faith? What's Jesus using in his supernatural, sovereign power to keep Paul from being another Demas? To keeping Paul from saying, hey, Roman judge, come back in. I guess I denounce it all because I don't want to die. Or all, my other, all the other Christians in the city have deserted me. So I guess, screw this. I'm, I'm, I'm just giving up. What kept Paul from getting there? Jesus' people. What does Paul want in his last moments? He wants to be around Jesus' people. Mark and Luke and others. Jesus uses his word, his spirit, and his people to help us persevere. Persevere through great seasons of hardship and pain and suffering. Jesus uses his people to help us persevere through great seasons of doubt and faithlessness. And Jesus uses his people because his people are his body. Jesus uses his people to help us persevere until the end. And we all need that. We all need this. Paul, one of the great heroes of the faith, says right before he's about to be executed, he cannot do it on his own. He has the word of God. He has the spirit of God, but he needs God's people around him. And that's what we want for you here at Hiawatha. If you're not a part of our church, we want you, you to have that wherever you land, wherever your home church is. But if you're a part of Hiawatha Church, we deeply want that for you. Now, we have many ways of, you know, structures of this playing out. One of the greatest uh, places we have for this is our community groups, which are just smaller groups of Hiawatha people for the sake of a school year, commit to each other, know each other, are known by each other, can, can serve and can receive, can grow in our faith, can care for each other. Um, so I'd encourage you, as, as they launch this fall, if you're not a part of one, strongly consider joining one. Not everyone can, and you can have this type of persevering, using your gifts, being uh, grown in your faith. You can have this community out, outside from community groups, of course. But this is just a great ministry we have that offers that. So I'd encourage you, find a group, commit to it for the school year. See those as especially your spiritual family for the year. Put some roots down. Care for them. Let them care for you. Be known by them and no others within our church. But if you can't be in a community group, get that in another place, whether it's a couple really close friends that you can have this type of honesty and camaraderie and, and spiritual friendship and connection, whether it's your roommates, whether it's other friends that are Christians, whether it's uh, the seniors ministry or the youth ministry, things like that. But we deeply want that for 
you. And everyone needs this. It's not, uh, yeah, everyone needs this, and it's going to be tough. Hopefully you notice this too, like we've been sharing here in Paul's story, Christians mess up, Christians screw up, Christians fall, Christians have weak moments or weak months or weak years. We hurt each other, we sin against each other. And so just know that as, you, as Jesus invites you into community with his people, just know that uh, like Paul got hurt and let down and even had some knives in his back, there's a chance that might happen to you. And of course, we don't want to do this. Of course, we hope we won't do this. But that is just the reality of when sinners gather together is that we will let each other down. And so just like Paul needed Christian community, he needed Jesus' people to persevere, we at our church want to encourage you to find that, to invest in that, to link arms with people uh, in your yeah, and in your spiritual life, especially when you're strong. When we're weak, we usually, we wanna, we, we usually want to run. Or uh, in, in times of suffering, we're just too broken or too exhausted to reach out for help. So if you're doing well, I'd encourage you, especially now, make, make a good decision to, to connect with other believers and stick with them. Okay, we looked at three characters here. Paul, or sorry, Demas, uh, Alexander, and... Um, John Mark here. Now let's look at Paul's life. So Paul shared some huge suffering that he went through, which we hit on and read earlier. So just look at how Paul describes his life and the heartache and the suffering and how that all went down. Let's read this once again. Verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to support me, but everyone deserted me. It may not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul, and, and he doesn't, you know, mince words here or, or kind of like sugarcoat it. He tells Timothy deeply, at my first defense, when I stood before the Roman judge or governor or whatever, where they said, what did you do? Or recant Jesus or else, no one else was there. No one in the Roman church was there. Demas wasn't there. My friends weren't there. No one came to my support. But not just because everyone was busy or because the doors were locked, but, it's, but Paul says, because everyone deserted me. I was abandoned. So in Paul's suffering, he describes it painfully clear as being abandoned by those he loves, as being deserted by his church family, and by being all alone. Now this type of abandonment, I mean, this word uh, had new meaning to me a couple years ago. And so uh, three years ago, after the murder of George Floyd, uh, my wife and I, we lived just off of Lake Street. And uh, many of you have, have similar stories as well. But that week, uh, the riots broke out and buildings began to be burned. And from our house, we could smell the smoke. We could see the flames. And uh, each day, uh, they got closer and closer to our house. And I remember uh, just a couple days into this, realizing no one's coming. Realizing that um, I don't think the police can stop this. And then realizing the fire department 
they're not even going out to put these uh, buildings out. And even if they wanted to, even if they're told to, they can't get there because of the riots and the police and the National Guard's not coming. And so in, uh, there's a few very dark moments for my wife and I. And again, I'm sure many of you have similar stories where we realized there's no one to call for help. Like we, we, are, we are on our own. Um, if this goes south, if those fires jump two blocks, uh, there's no one to call to protect my house from looters or from the flames burning down my house. And so my wife and my kids left. They went to the Clibers over in um, Highland Park to be safe for that week. And uh, my neighbors and I, and this was happening all throughout South Minneapolis, we stood in our streets uh, with pots and pans and baseball bats to make noise to hopefully deter people. Um, and to kind of just yell down the block, hey, people are coming, look out for them, or this car doesn't have license plates on it, or whatever. Uh, we did this every night till 5 a.m. that entire week because we were abandoned, abandoned by our city. No one was coming. There was no one but ourselves if things uh, went south. And now in, in sharing this story, I, I know that there's many people in our country who this is their reality all the time. Uh, maybe they, they never feel like they have people that they can call that will protect them or that will have their backs. But for me and my family and for, for many of us who, who live here in South Minneapolis, this was a very, I mean, traumatizing, hard, some, something that deeply wounded us where we went through a season where we really felt like um, no one can help us. We, we, we truly are deserted and we're all alone. So maybe you can empathize with Paul who's in a similar situation. Uh, th th there's no like appeals court. There's no like state appointed attorney. Uh, there's no like hope that Nero is going to suddenly turn and be nice to Christians anymore. But rather for Paul, his, his reality is that um, there's no help coming and he is deserted and all alone. Or maybe if you didn't have an, an experience like this or, or an experience of not having uh, justice be on your side, maybe just personally, maybe you can also empathize with Paul of just being all alone, of being maybe abandoned or, or, or neglected or deserted by people in your life. Maybe a family member or maybe specifically like, just like Paul is going through, maybe you've been in ministry and people have hurt you. They've left you. They've abandoned you. They have deserted you. I know many people in our church since COVID uh, have left. I mean, we've had a number of people, almost all for good reasons, but have moved, have moved out of state, have moved to get different jobs, have moved to be closer to extended family. And I talked with many of you, and even, the, the, even though the moves are for great reasons, you share, I share, I feel this. It's hard. It's hard when people leave. We, we feel abandoned. We feel deserted. We feel like, hey, I had partners in the ministry or, or people who are on mission with me here or just uh, people I opened up my house to, opened up my heart to. And we might just feel similarly on a lesser level. We can empathize with Paul and just like, yeah, when people leave, it really hurts. Even if it's, good, even if it's for good reasons, it hurts. It, it cuts deep. It, it leaves scars. I, I talked to many of our leaders and they just share it's tough. I, I, I don't want to open up my heart anymore because when I do, people let me down. People leave. People move on. And so I'm tempted to just stop letting people into my life or to stop opening up my heart and my home because when I do, people leave and it's just too hard. I'm just trying to survive here. 
So maybe in one of those many ways you can kind of empathize with just the great, deep uh, hurt, regret, sadness, despair, hopelessness that Paul is going uh, through here in his situation. And maybe you're thinking, well, this is how he should respond, or he will respond, right? If I was him, this is what I would do. I would close my heart. I would demand justice. I would slam those people who have deserted me. I would make sure everyone knew that they were uh, betrayers, that they put knives in my back. But yet, do you notice how Paul responds? You notice what Paul says? He says, to those who abandoned him in his darkest hour, he says, don't hold it against them, guys. I forgive them, and I want you to forgive them too. Paul declares publicly that their desert, desertion of him in his darkest moment should not be held against them. Timothy, this is what they did, but don't stay mad at them. Don't hold it against them. Everyone who reads this book, don't stay mad at them. Forgive them. There's a whole church in Rome in this city right now. Other Christians, don't hate on them. Forgive them. Don't hold it against them. And why can he do that? How can Paul say, man, these cuts were deep. I'm, I'm wrestling with despair and hopelessness right now. But the people that did this to me, forgive them. Or another one of Paul's letters, he writes this to other Christians. He says, other Christians, church, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Why? Just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Paul says the reason that Christians forgive each other, the reason that Paul can forgive those who betrayed him, those who hurt him, those who abandoned him, is because Christ has first forgiven him. That's the motivation, that's the power all Christians have to forgive others. That's why Paul can reconcile with John Mark. Is because first, Paul and John Mark have been reconciled to their creator. We have, have rebelled and, and sinned against and ran away from God a million times over what other people have done towards us. And when we realize that, we realize how great of his forgiveness is towards us. And that leads us then to do what Paul's asking the church to do, both in our Second Timothy passage and in Ephesians. He doesn't just say, hey, Greeks and Romans and pagans, they do these rules, but Christians forgive, so you must forgive. Or he doesn't just say, hey, I'm, I'm one of the heroes of the faith. You should copy me. You should emulate me. But rather, he says, the reason we forgive is because God has forgiven us in Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection, through us putting our faith in that, we can be forgiven. And because of that, we can forgive others. We can forgive Demas. We can forgive Alexander. We can forgive Mark. Paul continues. He says that he was, uh, even in this situation, even after being abandoned, he was strengthened and rescued by the Lord from evil. Verse 17, he says, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. And so you might be thinking, well, what's going on, Paul? Are you going to get executed or are you being rescued? You're promising that Jesus showed up. He gave you strength. The lion is about to devour you, but you got rescued. What's going on here is Paul is sharing that unlike Demas, unlike Mark earlier in his ministry, Paul in 
this moment of despair and hardship and trial, stood firm in the face of unbelievable persecution. While being physically alone, he knew that he was not truly alone, that Jesus himself was with him on trial. That Jesus himself was empowering him, giving him the strength to not lose faith, to not give up. Despite being in the lion's mouth, about to devour Paul with despair and fear and hopelessness at the hands of Roman judges and courts and executioners, Paul was delivered by Jesus to persevere, to not give up, and to not despair or to lose hope. And Paul says that not only that, but that the Lord will rescue him that the Lord will bring him into Jesus' heavenly kingdom. And here we see Paul understanding the reality of what's about to happen. He is going to be executed. He is going to die. Yet, for the Christian to be absent from these physical bodies is to be present with his Lord. Paul knows that the victory that Jesus is giving him is not survival. It is not acquittal in a Roman court. It's not not getting executed, but the survival, this rescue that Jesus is giving him, this victory that Jesus gifts is persevering in the faith. And then out of that, when he dies, being united with his Savior and entering into Jesus' heavenly kingdom. Paul is confidently resting and knowing that to leave this life for those who have put their faith in Jesus is to be reunited with him. John Calvin, the great reformer, he writes about this passage and he, and he picks up on some of this language that Paul uses. If we're tempted to think that Paul's a hero, Paul's the best of us, Paul's the one we should emulate because he was, he was super strong, he was super disciplined. If we're tempted to think that, John Calvin writes, he says, we can't, we can't get there. We might think we can, but look at Paul's own words about himself. John Calvin writes about our passage, he says, this is a remarkable passage for the maintaining the uninterrupted communication of the grace of God. Let me just stop there. He says, this is a remarkable passage for helping us understand that God's grace continues the whole of our life. It's not just grace that saves us, but it's grace that empowers us, that continues us, and that helps us end. He says, in, in opposition to the papist, or that is just the, the Roman Catholic view on this. After having confessed that the beginning of salvation is from God, the papists, the Roman Catholics, ascribe the continuation of it to free will. So that, in this way, perseverance is not a heavenly gift, but a virtue of man. Which we're all tempted to believe, right? We're all tempted to believe that, that those that reach the end, that those that are heroes of the faith, well, they just had great virtue. They were the strong ones of us. But John Calvin is saying, look at Paul's words. We can't get there from Paul's words. We can't get there from Scripture, but that rather grace is, is, is the, the empowering uh, motivator behind it all. He continues, And Paul, by ascribing to God this work of preserving us to his kingdom, openly affirms that we are guided by his hand during the whole course of our life, till having discharged the whole of our warfare, we obtain the victory. John Calvin, the Apostle Paul, are reminding us we are saved by grace, not by our works. But in some mystical, powerful, spiritual way we can't fully understand or even realize is happening, we are continued by grace. We are persevered 
by grace. We run the race by grace. We have victory by grace. And just like Paul, we will end the race by grace as well. As we're reading about Paul's life, about all of his suffering and the desertion he went through, about him having literal enemies in this world, you're probably thinking, hey, Paul kind of reminds me of another famous character here in the Bible. As I was, uh, Jesus, right? As I was studying uh, this passage, I, I went through this paragraph and I, I literally just made a chart and like almost every single phrase of Paul describing his uh, suffering he went through, I'm like, There's a li- this literally describes Jesus and his passion and his cross and resurrection. So look at this. We're going to see the connections between what Paul did and what Jesus did. We're going to see Paul as a type or as a picture of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, in seeing this connection, we're going to see the power and the motivation that got Paul to look like Jesus in the first place. The reason Paul can resemble Jesus in the way he suffers and forgives and endures and trusts God the Father is because Jesus first did all of this for him and is living inside of him. So let's look at Jesus. Him as well. Jesus' story is one of suffering. The Son of God uh, entered into human history, became a human being while keeping his divinity. And as he ended the end of his ministry, his disciples, his followers, his entourage were saying, we know Rome's against you. We know the Jewish leaders are against you, but we have your back. We have your back. We won't let any of them touch you. And even if they do, we will die before they can touch you. We will die alongside you. Yet, what happens in Jesus' final few hours? All of his buddies leave him. All of his friends abandon him. Even one of his close friends, Judas, betrays him. He's the guy that leads the soldiers to Jesus in the cover of night. And so in a much greater way, Jesus was deserted, abandoned, and alone. But not only that, if you remember Jesus' story, what does he do? In the midst of him being tortured and executed, does he call down justice for himself? Does he say, I am innocent. I deserve justice. This is wrong. Or does he look at his friends who are at a distance and say, really? Really, guys? You said you're going to be here with me. Why are you hiding behind slave girls? Why are you hiding behind women? Why are you hiding behind soldiers? Does he do that? No. Even greater than Paul, Jesus forgives those who deserted, abandoned, and betrayed him. In Luke 23, we write about this. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus, in the midst of his betrayal, in the midst of being completely alone and deserted, looks on his betrayers and his abandoners and his enemies, and he says, God, Father, don't hold it against them. They're just blinded. They don't even know what they're doing. And Paul gets this, remember? Paul says, forgive them. Don't hold it against them. And he says that because he knows that ultimately Demas, Alexander, the Roman authorities are not our ultimate enemies, but rather we're all blind like this because of our own sin, because of the sin out there, because of our enemy, Satan. We are blinded. We are blinded. And so Jesus, as he's pleading for our own forgiveness, 
He tells God the Father, they're blinded. They're fools. They don't even realize what they're doing. And God, I love them. Father, I love them. So forgive them. Forgive them for their sins. And this right here, Jesus' forgiveness of Paul, Jesus' forgiveness of his enemies on the cross, that's what gives Paul an unvengeful heart. Paul's not an unvengeful type of guy normally. But this is what changes Paul's heart. This is what changes Paul's heart to not just, okay, fine, I won't think about you, enemies, but to even say, I forgive you, enemies. Is because this first happened to Paul. This is what allows Paul to receive Mark back into his life. The guy who betrayed him, the guy who stuck a knife in his back, the guy who deserted him in his great need. And this is what gives us, you and me, Christian, this is what gives us the desire to forgive others, the power to trust our, our perfect heavenly judge and to not have to be a judge ourselves. and gives us the motivation, the new hearts, the desire to want to offer forgiveness against those who have sinned deeply against us. But as you know, hopefully you know, Jesus' story doesn't end here. Though he's on the cross and, and much of our jewelry and art the story does not end here, but rather in a million times greater way, Jesus too was rescued by God from every evil and brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. He was delivered from the mouth of Satan. Satan, who in the New Testament described as a roaring lion prowling around looking for those he can devour, God rescued Jesus from the lion's mouth. And in Jesus' death, and resurrection, that is where Jesus is king and where he begins his coronation. Through his death and resurrection, God rescues Jesus from every evil and brings him into his heavenly kingdom. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. Life is given. And this is the great news of Jesus, the greatest sufferer, the greatest one who is betrayed, the greatest one who offers ultimate forgiveness. And this is where it becomes good news to you and I. Do you notice how, how Paul ended this letter? So the last words we have of, of, of how did I miss that? That's a good quote. Um, I'm going to blame my pack going out for me missing this quote. Uh, back up. <laughs> Blair Line, who's a, an author uh, and a spoken word artist, she writes about these deep wounds that she has from her father who abandoned and deserted her and how through the gospel she's been able to forgive him. She writes these powerful words about this. She says, forgiveness is not easy. It's not easy, but it's necessary. And God is not asking us to do anything that he doesn't already do towards us. He always gives us more grace, and that includes the grace to change us and to enable us to forgive. What he's calling us to do, we cannot do on our own. We need the Holy Spirit's help, and we have it. So if you were hearing this story thinking, if I was Paul, I, I would, I would never forgive them because I'm stubborn, and they were wrong, and they suck, and they deserve to be punished. Or whether it's, I could never forgive like Paul's forgiving because that's just too hard. 
because my wounds are too deep, because I'm too weak, because I, I just can't stop thinking about the sin that's been committed against me. Blair Lynn reminds us that, no, it, it isn't easy. Forgiveness is not easy. It's costly, and it hurts, and it's actually even impossible. True, full forgiveness is impossible, but through the gospel, it actually is possible. It's impossible, but God's Spirit, who lives inside of us, gives us the power to do the impossible. And God's not calling you to forgive others. He's not calling you to do something that he hasn't first done on an infinitely greater level. And so it's these truths, these realities about us, about our salvation, about our identities, are what empower us to begin to forgive those who have sinned against us. Not to say it's easy or that it will happen in an instant, but it is the gospel. It's the good news that we first have been forgiven that will empower us to forgive others. Forgive others here in this room, people in our family, people in our pasts, people in our futures. As we end here today, you maybe have noticed the very last words that we have from Paul, the last words he writes in the Bible are of grace. He ends this letter after describing the great suffering he went through, describing his desire to be with his loved ones before he is executed. He ends with grace. The last sentence he says is, grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. I remember when I was uh, in elementary school, Sunday school, maybe seven or eight years old, uh, this word grace, it's a, it's a theological word. It's a hard word for kids to understand. What does grace mean? And they said, grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, decent theology, not perfect theology, but a helpful way to remember what grace means. Grace is you getting something you don't deserve. It's a gift. It's God's riches. It's being reunited with our God. It's being co-heirs with Christ. It's being invited into his heavenly kingdom. It's God's riches, but it comes at Christ's expense. So because Jesus was deserted, you can be brought near God. Because Jesus was abandoned, you longer no, have to be, no longer have to be alone or feel abandoned. You can be brought near your creator and your God. Because Jesus was struck down and sent away, you can be received. Because Jesus was all alone, was split from God the Father on the cross, you can be welcomed in to God's family, invited and uh, adopted into his family. So the good news that Paul ends with is that grace be for all of you. If you're not a Christian here today, that's Jesus' word for you today. He wanted you here for some reason. And this is the reason. He wants you to know that you do not earn your forgiveness. You do not earn uh, being adopted into his family. You do not earn uh, being connected with him, but that it's all about grace. It's a gift. He did all the hard work, and you just trust in him. As we wrap up, Catherine Butler in her book on suffering writes about this, which completely describes Paul's end-of-life situation. She writes, Jesus has pried the menacing grasp of sin from us and released us from bondage. 
So whatever that is for you today. For Paul, it was literal bondage. He had chains around his wrists. He was in a prison. He was about to be destroyed. He was struggling with despair and hopelessness because of his reality. Whatever it is for you today. Here's the truth for you today. Jesus has pried the menacing gra grasp of sin from us and released us from bondage. And even when tragedy strikes, when sin maims all that we cherish like a blade through flesh, we have a promise no weapon can touch. The Lord will provide. He will because it's who he is. Because in Christ, he's done so already. And that was Paul's hope. Paul's hope was, Lord will provide. The Lord will rescue me from evil. The Lord will sustain me and preserve me till the end. I won't lose faith. I won't give up. I will be brought into his heavenly kingdom because the Lord provides. And if I forget or if I question why, I look to this. I look to the cross. I know the Lord will provide because in Christ he already has. The greatest thing I ever need He's already given me through Jesus and the cross. So as I go through seasons of, of sin kicking my butt or feeling despair or going through great tragedy or suffering, let us look to Christ, Christ on the cross, who loved us deeply. Paul's story in the end of his life, 2 Timothy is a story reminding you and I that redemption is possible. You can be a Demas can be a mark. You can even be an Alexander, an enemy of the cross, someone who hates Jesus and his gospel, and there's still hope for you just by repenting, turning away from that, and just turning to Jesus. Redemption is possible through the gospel. Forgiveness is possible. No one is too far. No one has done too much evil. No one is too broken, too dirty, too faithless for Jesus. Forgiveness is possible. And for you who are feeling like, yeah, but the world is just so horrible. Evil is winning everywhere I look. Every place in my life, good does not win. It doesn't look like God is on his throne. The gospel and the end of 2 Timothy remind us that evil not winning is possible. That it actually will happen. And maybe it feels like it won't for a while here in this life. But because Jesus hung on that cross, because the tomb is empty, we know what our eternity will look like. We know that evil will lose. Even if, like Paul, we're staring at the gallows and there's no hope, we know that we have eternal hope. We know that we have spiritual hope. And that grace is for us all. Let's pray. God, we thank you that grace is for all of us. Grace is for all of us. Whether we are an enemy of you, whether we are far from you, whether we have abandoned you, whether we are just so stinking weak and hopeless and faithless that we feel like you're just embarrassed of us. God, no one is beyond your grace. Help us to believe that. Help us to receive that. And when we don't believe, strengthen our faith even more. We thank you, Jesus, for your uh, unfathomable, scandalous love towards each one of us sinners and for the, the eternal and spiritual life that you offer through faith in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.